Welcome to the Claremont DD Podcast. Our January issue is all about the stable account. Nicholas Handcart from the Ohio State Treasurer's Office visited our provider training on January 28th. Nick always does a great job of explaining the history of the stable account and how easy it is to open an account for a son, daughter, another family member, or for yourself if you are someone who has a disability and would like to open a savings account. You will hear some background noise as this was taped in a room full of people at one of our program sites where there were classes in the hallway from time to time. But please enjoy the information and remember to visit ClaremontDD.org for reference materials from Nick's presentation. Well, I appreciate you all being here this morning, but my name is Nick. I'm from the Treasurer's Office. We are doing things a little bit old school this morning. That's Hopefully that's all right with you, but I'm just going to be teaching you a lot about stable accounts and how they can help out uh, the individuals that you all work with, but also how they can work with every other type of account or benefit that people might be receiving. Because when people hear about stable accounts, they think of, okay, well, this eliminates spend now. So we know we no longer have to worry about resource limits or anything similar to that. But there's so much more that can be done with the accounts as well. So, But before I get into that, I'm going to back up a little bit. That Our team's actually been doing this since 2016. Um, so we've been doing this for a little over two and a half years now. This started at the federal level with the ABLE Act in 2014. It stands for Achieving a Better Life Experience. And essentially what that did is it set the federal groundwork. So once that was done, they said, all right, well, states, you can go ahead and, and do it yourselves. So Ohio took the initiative, and we were the first state to pass legislation back in 2015. And we were also the first state to launch uh, in 2016. So extremely quick turnaround. We are, we are the largest plan. We have over 10,000 people enrolled uh, across the country. It doesn't matter what state people are in. We have people from all 50 states that are using the account. We, we've been able to see in that short period amount of time that families, individuals have been able to save over $60 million, which is pretty incredible. I can't even wrap my head around $1 million, let alone $60. One thing that I always like to say is that even though stable accounts have not been around for very long, they were able to take some of the better parts of other financial accounts, like a special needs trust, which people have already, or like checking accounts, which people have already, and put them together in a way that helps out individuals for what they need. Before, besides the benefit of not no longer an individual having to abide by the resource limit, the account can also be owned by the beneficiary as well. So this allows for people to be able to own and operate their own stable account, which might not have been able to, be, to occur before. Is that everything is on the website? We also have all of our materials on the website as well. Including enrollment, we also have all of our materials on the website as well. So you'll see right here is the main page of the account, and there are two massive open an account buttons. That's the first thing you see. We're also going to go, there are a couple things I'm going to show first. Eligibility is that on the website we have an eligibility quiz because we get questions from parents and especially from SSAs so often about, oh, are the rules for eligibility still the same? Have they changed? We want to make it so it's as streamlined as possible. And this is a two-minute quiz. It's all yes or no questions and immediately answers for people whether they're able to have an account or not. So that is all done on our website. And if they are eligible, then it immediately takes them to the open the account stage. Now, the reason why this quiz is so quick is because there are only three or four rules for eligibility. 
first is going to ask if they already have an account. And the reason why is because there is only one per person. That's kind of different than a checking or savings account, but individuals, there's only allowed to be, they're only allowed to have one. Uh, the second rule is that the, the disability must have occurred or onset before the age of 26. Now, that doesn't mean that people have to be below the age of 26 to enroll either, because last year we had a 93-year-old enroll in the program. So we cover individuals of all age ranges. It's just that they are able to state that their disability occurred before the age of 26. And before the last part of eligibility I'll get into, I want to show you all our resources because it's going to help me explain it a little bit better. Because our, our resources page is where everything is at. And you'll see right here is that here's the brochure that I have on the back table, but also the presentation and the presentation outline, which you all have as well. The third rule is that an individual needs to meet one of three criteria. And those three criteria are very Social Security based. And that's if an individual is receiving SSI or SSDI, they're automatically eligible. If an individual has a condition that's on the list of compassionate allowances, they're also automatically eligible. But what the third part of this rule does is it really opens up the door for people that might not be receiving Social Security or might not be receiving benefits at all or may even have a temporary disability. And what this is, is self-certification. And what self-certification does is it allows for people that don't fit those first two rules to be able to enroll. And all it's doing is it's stating that they fit those first two rules so they don't already have an account and they had their disability before the age of 26. It says that they have a doctor's note. And when we, when we say doctor's note, that it's a diagnosis, but we don't have anybody turn anything in. Enrollment, everything is done, as I showed, completely online. But the nice thing about it being online is that it's completely free. So individuals, when they enroll, it's completely free, which definitely separates stable accounts from a special needs trust in a lot of ways. We've tried to make it as quick as possible because before people even enroll, there's a bullet list of things that they may need, information that they may need, like uh, address, birthday, things of that nature that they're going to need in order to enroll in a stable account. And we say that it takes approximately 20 minutes, uh, but there's actually a YouTube video, so you can try and call my bluff on this, but there's a young lady named Darcy. She lives all the way out in California. Uh, but she has a stable account, and Darcy has cerebral palsy, and Darcy can only type with one finger on each hand, but she was able to enroll in less than 12 minutes just because she is an absolute genius in my mind. I've watched that video tens of times. It's incredible. I hope you all should as well. That, that just goes to show that uh, we've tried to make the process as, as, as streamlined as possible for individuals. Now, there is a $50 opening deposit, but we always let people know that that's not a fee at all. Let's create an opening balance in the account. The stable account can be owned and operated by the individual with the disability or the beneficiary. So in, in that case, maybe somebody is a minor. Maybe somebody doesn't want to handle their own finances. That they don't have to. And somebody else can help out in that case in point. And that other type of person is an authorized legal representative, or for short, an ALR. All that is, is that's a parent, or a guardian, or a power of attorney. So if somebody is one of those three things, they can open up a stable account for the beneficiary. 
Let's take it one step further. Let's say that they're not either of those three things, but they still want to help out and they still want to be the ALR for somebody. The main one that I use as an example, it's probably the, the most used one that we have asked, is about a representative payee. Because the rep payees handle a lot of finances for individuals already and would like to continue to do so. So in this case, we have on our website, which actually is right by the other PowerPoint where we just were, is a limited power of attorney form. And what this limited power of attorney form is, is it allows somebody to become the ALR, but it's only of the stable account. So it's nothing more, nothing less, but allows them to still be able to help out. Now, there are two ways that people can put money into the account. When people can put money into the account, they can do it either electronically or with a check. And the one thing that I want, to, that I want people to know is that anybody can put money into the account. Anybody can contribute into a stable account, whether it's family, friends, neighbors, coworkers, anybody and everybody. Everybody that contributes into a stable account can also take advantage of a tax deduction. And so here in Ohio, if you're contributing to somebody's stable account, it's a $4,000 state tax deduction. And that's to say that, yes, you contributed to an ABLE account, even if it's your own ABLE account, and can still receive those benefits. Yes. So if I contributed to it, I would get that? Yes. Yeah, and so even if somebody owns their own stable account and they contribute into that, then they can claim that as well. Now, there are, th there are two numbers that I want people to focus on, but only there are three of them in total. The first is an annual account limit, and this is $15,000 per year. And so from January 1st to December 31st, people can put in up to $15,000 in the stable account every year. And so every January 1st, people get a clean slate and are able to put, again, 15 more into the account. So they can continue to grow and grow and grow. One thing that we always make sure that, that we do is that our system will automatically reject any excess contributions. So people cannot exceed this if they, if they uh, don't, or if, if people try to, it can't be done. Now, one thing that happened at the beginning of 2018 was something called the Able to Work Act. And what the Able to Work Act said that if you are employed, you can now put even more money into your stable account in a calendar year. And so this changes it from $15,000 to the, it's technically $27,140. I usually just say about $27,000. It just sounds easier to say. It's incredible to think that people couldn't, have $2,000 to their name, but now can continually have $27,000 every calendar year. Now, not many people are maxing out the accounts, but we like to say that this is achievable. And so what we get is we can see that people can put, they can use their wages to bridge that gap from the fifteen dollars to 27000 So if somebody's employed, they're able to use their wages and put money into the account. A couple of ways that we've seen this happen is payroll deduction. Uh, let's say an individual is employed and they want to take some of their paycheck and put it into their stable account, we generate that form automatically for them when they request it and send it off to them and they give it to their employer and it gives their employer a step-by-step -step process on how to make that work. The second way that we've seen that done is we've actually partnered with several employers across the state where they offer stable accounts now as a a 401k equivalent 
benefit. The reason why is because no matter where an individual works, a stable account will not be a countable resource. Under certain circumstances, a 401k can turn into a countable resource in the eyes of Medicaid and Social Security. So we don't want people to be losing their benefits, and so that's why we've been able to see that positively work for individuals. Yes? How does it grow? What are you investing in when you put this in these accounts? Oh, I These are the investment options. So what you're looking at is three separate screenshots of what the enrollment process looks like. When somebody enrolls, they only see one of these. And the money can grow based on four different mutual funds that people can invest in. It's completely optional. People do not have to do that. There are the four mutual funds, and then there's a fifth option that's just a savings account. So it doesn't grow any money. It's FDIC insured. This usually depends upon what somebody's goals are with the account. Maybe they're using it as a retirement account, or maybe their parents are putting this money away for years and years and it won't be touched for a long time, that they might want to have their money make money. And so that's why they can put it into mutual funds. And so these four different ones are, they are optional, but this allows for people to be able to utilize mutual funds that they might not have been able to utilize ever before. When people enroll, that savings account option is defaultly selected. And so if people want to choose the mutual funds, they're more than welcome to. They can also reallocate their funds as they see needed as well. So let's say six months down the road, they're like, well, you know, I would like to have my money make some money for me. Or I'd like to give these mutual funds a shot that they can take a little bit of it, they can take all of it, and put it into one of those. It's completely based on their prerogative. Are we taxed on the interest that we make on no, you that are too? Not. So, and what if he wants to withdraw or there's an emergency? No, no. no. Taxes? So the the money tax -free? it is oh, okay. the the earnings are tax free, and so the the reason why is that it, when somebody has their stable account and and they log on, it looks like just still one number. It's one pot of money, but when somebody wants to withdraw it, then it just it just comes out of those mutual funds. So let's say I mean if they need to take. And five hundred dollars out that that they can do that. You had mentioned that some of the employers that you guys have partnered with um, are participating in this. Yes, sir. are they matching like a four hundred one k? If it's so, it would be contribution. Yes. Well, so that's a taxable. Is that a taxable income then if they're matching? So no. So when when they when they are wow. when they're putting and the the one that we see is. UCO Industries. Uh -huh. uh, it's a big one in Marysville. Sure. Um, the reason why we don't have a lot of workshops doing it is because they also receive money from Medicaid. And putting that when when somebody's an employer and they're also receiving Medicaid dollars, that it becomes difficult for them to do a match without it being an inducement for an individual, right. um, which is unfortunate. But that that's just the way things go. So right. we're. In UCO's case, that they have a large contract with Honda, um, and so they they don't when they receive money from Medicaid, they're able to separate it from what they're giving. Honda's to paying the match. Individuals, is what I'm understanding. Yes, and so what they do is it's a four up to a four percent match of what an individual is contributing into the okay. account. So they might not be, or you know, if an individual chooses to put the four percent in, then they can do that as well. So it, it's completely based on their prerogative. But when it comes to an employer partnering with us, no, nobody has to do a match. It just might be offering this to people to let them know that it's available. Because as we go across the state, there are still 
people that after two and a half years that don't know about stable accounts. And that, that's understandable. That's exactly why we're here. We're here to educate and let everybody know they're available. These are all post-tax deductions, so that's why they're not they're all, Yeah, they're all post-tax dollars that are going into the account. So it, it, it acts in, in, that, in that case. In this, you, you, would draw, you would withdraw it from like, like a Roth IRA or a Roth 401k. I was 401k. just going to say Roth, yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, okay. That's what it's very similar to. So some things that I want to touch on that I accidentally scrolled over, not accidentally, but I scrolled over, is that there is a lifetime limit, and that's $468,000. It's going to take forever to get to this. Currently, it's sitting at about 37 and a half years if the numbers don't move, but all the numbers are moving up. So it, we don't expect people to be hitting this. That's why I, I say that people should be focusing on those annual contribution limits. Now, there is an e-gift event. We've seen it used in a couple, uh, a couple really similar ways. The first is that we like to see this as a re-education tool for individuals in the sense that people have been told, with, especially by benefits agencies, that they can't save or you know, beyond that $2,000, beyond their resource limit. And so families have told each other, don't contribute or might be hiding something under the mattress, but this allows for people to be able to contribute and take advantage of those tax deductions, it essentially just streamlines it. And so we've also seen this used in a GoFundMe fashion, because what this is, is let's say I, uh, an individual has a stable account, and they, it's the holidays. They can send this e-gift event out to family, friends, whoever they choose, and make it so that they describe the situation and, well, I have this new type of account that you can contribute to me, take advantage of these certain benefits, and I'm able to keep my benefit. It's a whole different ballgame. The one example I like to give is that there was an, an older gentleman who used uh, the e-gift event to tell his friends about that he needed hearing aids, but Medicaid left him with four grand out of pocket to pay still for those hearing aids. So he was able to knock the cost down by letting, by letting his friends know that this was an option for him, and he paid for them with his stable account. So that the missing. IRS is not going to, you're not going to get in any trouble from the IRS doing well, this? Well, we work with the IRS. This is a federal account. This is for the child, though, the person, for of course. them, yes. only. So it, it is, and that's exactly what I'm going to get into right now, that it is only for that individual. Person. This is one of the questions, and I'm glad that you've made that segue, is that this is something that when we get questions, besides eligibility, what can I spend the money on, is one of the biggest questions that we get. I have the federal lingo down, and that is that it must relate to the individual and their disability and help to maintain or improve health, independence, quality of life. So that is extremely broad. What that allows to do is it allows for this account to move and mold over time for that individual because an individual's needs are not going to stay stagnant for their entire life. Nor should they. Nobody's does. And so this allows because whatever an individual's needs are, this account can fulfill it. We, we say that a, a certain number of things are, there's nothing set in stone that the money can or can't be spent on. But when we look at these rules here, or the two rules, and we get questions from parents, well, can I spend my money on this? Can I spend my money on that? Well, if, if it follows the rules, then you're able to spend the money in a stable account on that. And so the one rule that we, we know that people cannot spend the money on is just gifting 
people cannot just give the money away because it does not relate to their disability at all. So what age for parents? Once they've met those three criteria, regardless of age, is when you can start contributing to that account? But Am I, 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 I So I let's just say age four, you've met all three criteria oh, to yes, open the account. You can start... Is, you could start contributing that there's no minimum immediately as a parent, but that at that time it's fifteen thousand is the limit because they're not the, the, their son or daughter, yes. right? And so you could build that nest egg for them before they even went out into independence. Yes. Okay. But then the parent could use it for it would be only for their expenses, child. Yes. right? So if um, if they, there was adaptive technology that you know an agency would pay for. Then, then you could do it through that. Uh, um. Of course. So there, here I do have you know eight examples of things that the account can always be spent on. Assistive technology is one of them. Education is one of them. And a 529 plan can also roll over into an, an ABLE account. The reason for that being is that to, to get in a little in, in the weeds is that an ABLE Act, the ABLE Act is technically called 529A. It's, it's a sister type of account to a 529 college savings plan. So they mirror one another very closely. What that allows people to do is, let's say that uh, somebody has money in their 529 account, but they, they'd rather be in this account. And so they can have it roll over into their stable because it can still be spent on education, but it can also be spent on so much more. So things like housing and rent, basic living expenses like going to the grocery store. This is things that a special needs trust doesn't cover because that's what SSI is supposed to cover. Stable accounts cover all of those bases. Assistive technology, we have seen people to where they have, um, they're, they're at that $15,000 cusp of, of their stable account and they use some of that money to open up a trust because they, they do need the, the shelter more money as well. So I'm going to get in a little bit in a minute to how these different financial accounts can work together. There are three ways that money can be spent from the account. People can link their stable account to a checking or savings account. So that's one way that money can be put into the account. That's an easy way to put money in, but push comes to shove, that's also a way that money can be taken out. The second is a third-party check. So when people have a stable account, they don't receive a checkbook. What they can do is they can virtually fill out a check, and once that information is submitted, our office writes a physical check and mails it for them. And so the example that I, I like to give with this is, let's say somebody's paying rent, and so they need to pay their landlord by this date, and they go into their stable account, fill out that virtual check, and once they submit it, we get it, write the check to their landlord, and mail it to them. What this also does is it saves the information. So when they pay January rent, they need to pay rent 11 more times this year. That that information saved, they can just go in and resubmit it. And so they have all that information saved already. The third way, and the, the, the most everyday way to spend the account, is using a stable card. And the stable card is a loadable debit card. It's a Visa card. You know, it can be accepted anywhere that Visa is accepted. And so when I say loadable, what I mean by that is that this is optional, but if somebody would like it, that it comes to them in the mail and it has zero dollars and zero cents on it. And so what that means is that people need to take money from their stable account and load it onto the stable card. The reason for that is it's an inherent security protection. Because let's say somebody has a few thousand dollars in their stable account, that they might not want all that just walking around on a card. 
so people can take a certain amount of that and put it onto the card, and that's all the card knows. So let's say they, they have $1,000 in their account, but they only take 100 of it and put it onto the stable card. That card only knows $100. So it won't spend what it doesn't have. But since it acts like a debit card, there also won't be any overdraft, no low balance charges, anything like that. There is no cash access with the account, though. And what I mean by that is two things. First is that the money, or excuse me, the card cannot be used at an ATM to just pull out cash but it also can't be used at a point of sale. And what I mean by that is that when somebody's at Kroger or Walmart, that uh, the money just can't be, once they're checking out, getting groceries, they can't say, oh, well, I'd like $1,000 cash back right now. Neither of those things can happen using the stable card. But they can buy groceries with it? Yes, yeah, so it's just like a credit card instead yeah. of ATM card. Yes. Okay. So advances. So it, well, as long as they have that money preloaded onto the card. Now, what the account also does is it tracks expenses for the lifetime of the account. And so this is good for a couple of reasons. Is because just like when individuals log on to the, an, an online banking account, that they see the date the money was spent, where it was spent, and how much was spent. This does the exact same thing, but it goes a step farther. And with each, with each line item, it allows for people to notate that expense so they can go into more depth with it if they choose. But also what we can now do is people can just take a picture of their receipt and upload it, connect it to that one line item. So if somebody's at Walmart and they get their receipt, they, they can take a picture of it and upload it and it would be right there with that expense. I, this might be going too far, but like at Walmart you could buy a TV and that's not a daily living expense. Is that how to... What, what would happen? Well, so that is, that it, that's something that, that's in an individual's or whomever that ALR might be. That's their choice. If they see that that fits those two rules, okay. that it relates to the individual and helps to maintain or improve health, independence, or quality of life, if, if they believe that it fits that, then they can, they can spend they the money. They make a case on. for that. Okay. As long as they can make a case for that. I'm just thinking about things that are outside of daily living expenses mm -hmm. that, that would be at like a Walmart or Target. Uh, well, so one of the biggest questions we get is vacation. <laughs> I, I mean, iPad's a great example, though, because there's a lot of connectivity. I mean, I think you could make an easy argument for an iPad, but like, uh, what's well, the new things, the AirBuds that all the kids want? Was that, is that That's also that, assistive technology, so if you sure. can make the case for assistive technology, then that, that would be understandable, but... Uh, the biggest question that we get is vacation. And so, again, this is something where we don't answer that question because every individual situation is different. And so if they believe that they can spend the money on, on vacation, then they can spend the money on vacation. I mean, that's enriching your life. So, yeah. you, you, did, you did earlier bring up, and I, I want to kind of bring this full circle here, is you did mention the IRS, which is three of the most feared letters in the history of the United States. And that we, we do work with them in the sense that the IRS, under the federal law, they can audit any of the accounts that they choose. We have not had an account be audited yet. But if they so choose to, that they can do that. And so that's why we do encourage people to just keep, to, you know, when, when seeing those expenses, they can notate it or they can upload a receipt. It just, you know, creates rock-hard expenses. Well, the reason why, too, is um, we go to a lot of um, conferences, and he doesn't like to drive. He likes to fly. He wants to get there, get some anxiety sometimes to drive home and cars and stuff like that. 
And, and transportation. So, and, I'm wondering if that's a, a situation that you can consider anyone you can call. So transportation is one of the for, things for that is us. Expected. Yeah. Well, so you could. We have our public service line. Where um, 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 we see, um, and I'll get into people that. usually think of transportation as just, just a car payment, but that's not in the case. When we dive into it, we say everything is to a lot with those. Especially you mentioned gas. I need air change to roll out the car for a lot. An individual can't drive. They need. Of course, let's say the individual is going. In order to have a transportation facility provided for that caretaker, these are all included as you know a qualified expense because of that. So if that caretaker broad maintains or improves their quality of life, that's what I was wondering. So it's without that caretaker, that it'd be very tough for an individual to do certain. And so these next couple slides I'm going to get into is about the benefits and how the benefits can really can really meld with the stable accounts. The first is that. Uh, this is what Social Security at the federal level said, that these are some rules for them. And so the first one is that any balance in a stable account over $100,000 could count as a resource. Now, we won't run into this until two years from now, but we are letting people be aware of it exactly for the case that you made earlier, that families might be building up a nest egg for a child. And so the reason why they've, they've done this is because they said, well, SSI is meant for housing and food, and if you have $100,000 for at least one month, you can cover your housing and food. But this is why we also encourage people to look at other ways to protect their money as well, such as a trust, which I'll get into a little bit later. Does uh, that include SSDI could, too? No. You could purchase no, property with $100,000 though. You could. Right? And, then you could, and then that wouldn't count as a resource anymore because it's tied up in real estate. And so if a family wanted to set up a person in a situation, they could, I don't know, buy a duplex or something like that. And then Well, that's, a, that's actually really interesting that you brought that up because we do have a testimonial where a family does have a really young son. And they say, well, once we get the $100,000 over however many years it takes, that we're just going to buy a house. Housing is a qualified expense. The next rule is that, and this is, if somebody has, it's essentially just reminding people that uh, the stable account is the shielded account, but a checking or savings account is not. And so what I mean by this is that, let's say somebody has money in their stable account, they take it out and put it into a checking or savings account, it's accountable resource. Just because it came from the stable account, it's left the shield. It's sitting in that checking account or that savings account. So it's no longer protected. So just to keep that in mind for people and the benefits that they might be receiving. The third is that if Social Security has placed any wage limits or wage rules on an individual, that those still apply because we don't make those rules. Those are Social Security's rules. So does it become taxable after it comes out of the account and into a savings or checking account? No, it does not. So let's say... Let's say you have $500 in a stable account. You take that and transfer it to a checking account. You just now have $500 in your checking account. It can now be a countable resource because it's left that shield of the stable account. You see what I mean? It wouldn't be taxable ever because it's been done post-tax. Okay. Yes. Okay. If the account holder passes away, what's going to happen in that case in point? When an individual that has a stable account does pass away, that... The, the person handling the, the estate will gain access to that account. The reason why is that they can spend or they can pay for funeral and burial expenses or any medical bill, any, any type of outstanding bill that they might have. It can be paid out of a stable account. 
And so there is no designated transfer upon death. And so what this means is that if an individual passes away, that the money needs to go somewhere. The money needs to come out and go somewhere. And that's why we encourage people to, now that we've seen people now have the ability to be able to save much more than $2,000, farther above their resource limit, that having an estate plan can be an important part of what they do now. Um, and so that can say where their money goes once they pass away. Because if an individual doesn't have a will, then it will go to the probate court, and then the probate court decides what they do. And that's not just with, you know, that is not just with individuals with disabilities, that is, that is with everybody. So if, if you don't have a plan, the government will make a plan for you. Is the ceiling the same for a married couple then? Because, I mean, there's a lot of people that we serve that might be married couples. Mm -hmm. And, and they can't transfer their account to their spouse if they pass? No, there's no... There's but it no would go through, there has to be a will. So what you could do is... And they and this pay is, for the will through financial services through their stable account. You could transfer the money from one ABLE account to another ABLE account, uh, but it, you cannot name a beneficiary. Right. On so, the but there's account. gift rules around that, too. There's only so much per year that you can... It, it would be the $15,000. Okay. Right. So they, they still have to follow all the... The contribution. They just have to have a will set up that, that married couple. So well, we, we recommend it. It's right. not you know it, it's not Certainly. necessary, but we would recommend that. Yes, did I so, miss one? Yeah, if they have the estate and they have where they want the money to go, mm -hmm. and if they can designate it to whoever they want to, the date of their death is it sealed into the account where you can't touch it, or if you don't have that established before their death. That that would be. Have what established? Sorry. Um, the estate or a trust. Can you do a trust? Well, so That's a lot of people have trusts that begin when that are funded once they pass away. That and that's usually through insurance. But I'm I'm not a special needs trust planner, so I can't answer that question. I apologize. But yeah, I don't know the I don't know the specific rules on that. What happens when the person is deceased and you get the death certificate? What what happens to this account? Is it sealed? That no, it's sealed shut. No, it, it, it would it would not be perform legal documents dating. I mean, is it a problem when somebody passes away? That's what I'm asking. No, it's not meant to be a problem. It's just meant so that the well, once an individual passes away, that whoever might be the administrator of that estate can pay for certain things. And so that, first off, the person, the person would need to notify us. That's the first step of how that goes. Okay. Now, what I get a question from a lot of, when especially from parents, is what happens if somebody's been receiving Medicaid. Um, so this is a, a slightly complicated slide, but I, I, if we're gonna we're gonna try and break it down as as well as possible. When an individual has a stable account or even if they don't have a stable account, and this is, this is what a lot of people might not know, is that they're receiving Medicaid, then when, once they pass away, Medicaid can ask for services rendered from the time that they have been receiving benefits. So this is what people like to call the Medicaid clawback. And this means that once an individual passes away, that Medicaid will ask for the money that they gave to an individual over their lifetime back. And so this does, this does not... Whether you have a stable account or not, this is something that happens. And so, anyway. anyway. Whether you have an account or not, exactly. come back and say, we want our Yeah, so back. this is, the, 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 the thing about this is, this is, not, this is not specific to stable accounts at all, but the thing about this is, we're open and upfront 
about our rules and protections, and other people are not. Because when you go into, and the, specifically the way it's done is that uh, state Medicaid services are provided through Jobs and Family Services. Right. And it's up to that county JF, uh, JFS office whether they would like to have you sign an entire sheet of paper letting you know about this and that this can happen, or just put it in the fine print. And so a lot of people unfortunately choose the latter. We want to make people known about this because we have securities and protections in place to make sure that, that the individual with the stable account is not leaving anybody in debt when they pass away. Because let's, let's take three different types of accounts, for example. A checking or savings account, there are no protections on it. So government gets the first swing of the bat, and if there are no protections on that type of account, then they can take a lot of that money. And then on the flip side of the coin is a third-party trust where Medicaid cannot take anything from that type of account. The reason why is because it's in a third-party name. So it's not in that individual's first name. That's the only way they can be protected from that? There's also a family trust, and I'm not certain if a family trust is 100% bulletproof. But stable accounts, frankly, fall right in the middle of the road. And so what, what we've seen is a few rules. First, an individual has to be above the age of 55 for this to kick in. Secondly, is that Medicaid payback can only happen if they were receiving Medicaid and had a stable account at the same time. So we've also had situations where somebody stopped receiving Medicaid services and then several years later they opened up a stable account. And at this point in time there was no overlap. So Medicaid could not ask any money from the stable account. So what happens is Medicaid keeps extremely good records for this exact purpose, for when this time comes. And we know when an individual opened their account and if they've been receiving any Medicaid services. So there's got to be some overlap. And so once we've found that overlap, a couple things are going to happen still. We're not done. Once that overlap's been found, then all funeral and burial expenses are paid for. Any outstanding bills that they might have, rent, anything like that, those are all paid for. If somebody is buying into Medicaid, those are all added up and subtracted from the total. So we're trying to really chop this amount down to as little as possible. But after all those things are done, is that Medicaid can ask for the services rendered after that. So the purpose of a stable account is for the quality of life of that individual. It is not necessarily a generational kind of wealth building tool. Are there any questions on that? I know that that was an absolute ton of information. <laughs> so if you get Medicaid, regardless of your developmentally disabled or not, they can ask for that money back. It would, be from, it would be from the things that are in that individual's name. And that does include property. Now this is something that we've had to do a lot of research on because we do get a lot of questions on it. But I can promise you that Medicaid will ask for money whether you have a stable account or not. Who are they going to ask for it from? The estate. Okay. Does, does that include like food stamps? Like say they're getting food stamps for five years. I do not know the answer to that. I apologize. That's okay. I can, I can look that up and then uh, I'll shoot you an email as well. But that's something that we do have contacts at the federal level, so I'll just make a quick call. Oh, good. But that, that's also one thing that, you know, we've also seen situations, and, you know, we have, we have people at the federal level of Social Security as well, because we, we've seen instances to where 
we go to a social security office and I give a presentation to all of their, their case managers and then some of them still decide to believe that Enable accounts accountable resource and so we get a call from a family saying, oh well my, my benefits are getting shut off because I have $5,000 in this account. Well, they're breaking federal law so we have to let them know that they cannot be doing that. We, we have gotten every situation settled within that day so Unfortunately, we don't know about it unless people tell us about it. So we have, if you hear about anything like that, please let us know. We will get it rectified. So Job and Family Service can't even shut down things? If Nobody can. Nobody. That would, it, unless, yes, no. Well, once an individual, if they choose to close their own account, then they can close their own account. Any questions that I'm missing right now? It sounds like, almost like, can you double dip? That's what I can they get food stamps and do this account? This is meant to be a, a protected resource for people that are already receiving benefits. I mean, they don't have to be receiving benefits, but food stamps can be considered a benefit. So they can, they can have a stable account and be receiving benefits. That's, that's kind of the main crux. And you're saying if they say, well, you got this account, we can't give you any more food stamps or we can't do this for you anymore. As long as you have this account, that's illegal? No, no. to say that? Or, I'm trying to understand, I guess, that. You could be receiving any types of benefits, including food stamps, including SNAP, and still have a stable account. So if somebody were to come up to you and say that, then let me know. Okay. Now, there is no cost to open the account, but there is a monthly cost to maintain the account. And that's $2.50 for people here in Ohio every month. But for all the other 49 states, that it's $3.50. So... One thing that I also like to let people know is that this is a not-for-profit program, so the more people that we enroll, the lower the cost gets for everybody. And we used to, when we first started, it was $5 a month for people out of state. So we're slowly, slowly working that cost down, and I will, I will love the day when I can just get rid of that. But this is something that, you know, is continual. And we let people know when we, when we lower the fees. And I only have two slides left, so I promise I'm almost done. A stable account, a special needs trust, a checking account, these can all work together. And in fact, they can all be connected together as well. Because we've seen where a special needs trust can fund a stable account so that they can have a certain amount of money each year. And that's been extremely special because a stable account has the daily usage with the card and it comes with the tax benefits, but it can also spend for things like housing and like food that a special needs trust cannot. And this last slide is just that this is our customers, and all this information is uh, on here as well, is that this is our team. Uh, we can answer any questions that you have, our email as well. So, if, And especially I know that parents do things really late at night. So we are, our, our customer service team is going from 9 a.m. to 8 p.m. But people can email us and we'll get, we'll get back to you as well. Uh, my final pitch is the website, stableaccount.com. This is where everything is done. Managing the account, opening the account, letting people know that the accounts exist. But if you, if you don't have any questions, I, um, you know, I, I appreciate you all for taking a few minutes of your day to really let me talk for a really long time. Um, I, I appreciate all of you. And if there aren't any questions, I want to just thank you all. So I
really appreciate it. So. Hey, I don't have a. I, I guess maybe I do have a question. Is the the number that you give there is that still answered by a person? It doesn't. It is. Voicemail or anything. Yes. Yeah, so oh, so what what happens is when people call, um, there is a voice that comes on and reads off our 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 website. And then once it's done reading off the website, then it just goes to a dial tone and, a, and one of our team members picks up. I think that's really important because you don't have to go through several different steps if you just have, you know, a couple quick questions. And I know that was something last year when you first yes. presented to us to some families that was really important and people appreciated that. So there, There's no press one for this, press two for that. There's no decision making for the people if they wanted to. Absolutely. These people are trained, knowledgeable. They probably know more than I do. I'm not going to say that. <laughs> no, I'm not going to agree to that. <laughs> if there aren't any questions, I greatly appreciate it. So thank you all. Thank you. Our thanks to Nick Hancart from the Ohio State Treasurer's Office on his stable account presentation. Remember to visit StableAccount.com for answers to all of your questions, or you can call their office anytime from 9 a.m. to 8 p.m. Monday through Friday, and someone will answer your call in person in case you have specific questions related to your account. Claremont DD Podcast is produced by the Claremont County Board of Developmental Disabilities in Ohio. To learn more about our services, visit ClaremontDD.org. That's all for now. Until next time, stay warm and pray we have an early spring.